Welcome to Rising Tide Startups, where today's most exciting solopreneurs share their startup stories. They also deliver tangible strategies that they would implement personally if starting their business over today. Each episode is a startup masterclass. Make sure you take notes. Take it away, Kevin. This is Kevin Pruitt with another episode of Rising Tide Startups, and my guest today is Elliot Holland. Elliot, calling in all the way from Hotlanta. Thanks for joining us today on Rising Tide. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Hey, I'd love for you to share a little bit about Elliot Holland with our audience to get the ball rolling here. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a reformed engineer, um, <laughs> strategy consultant that I uh, went to Harvard Business School and decided to get into the business of buying small and medium sized businesses. I did it for other folks for a while, then I did it for myself. And now I'm participating as an advisor. So my, my core business, Guardian Due Diligence, which I started in 2017, is meant to help um, individual business buyers vet their businesses that they're acquiring before they purchase them to be sure that the, that the numbers actually come back um, consistent with how the business has been represented and that people don't get into bad situations buying million dollar businesses that should be $10,000 businesses. So that's, that's what I do. So it's, is it always on the buy side? Yes always on the buy side and that's on purpose. The, um, the buy side is where I've lived. So sort of like some of the best NBA coaches or former players, mm -hmm. I understand the buy side very well. And if you think about it, like I, I use analogies a lot. So like a car auction. So the, the, the auctioneer is amazing, right? But he's the guy who's the best at selling any asset for its highest price. I'm the guy who's got a used car lot that only wants to buy the cars that are 50% less than what I can sell them for. So that's, that's where I live. So that, that is that, is that um, when you're talking to prospective buyers, is, is that kind of your value prop? Is that, that kind of the, the lead statement? I mean, if you're, um, I mean, we can just jump right into it. The elevator yeah. pitch, you know, you and I are getting on an elevator. We're going up 10 floors. You got about 45 seconds to kind of sure. convince me what's that elevator pitch. Hey, Kevin, if you're looking to buy a business, it's very unlikely that you have 10 years experience in vetting small company messed up financials to understand that this business is really this million dollar asset or a $10,000 debt. What guardian due diligence does is help you cut through all the financials, look through everything, reconcile bank statements, taxes, financials, working capital inventory and all the rest to give you a very clear picture of what the business you're buying actually is. And we answer the question, is the business that you have an offer to buy, is it worth what you're paying? And we do that from a financial accounting and operational lens so that you, you, you turn a million into many millions, not a million into 10,000. Now, is the, is the transaction from your perspective, is the transaction only a one-time transaction or is there something built in that says, hey, if I buy a business and it just skyrockets, I mean, there's some you know, reward for the due diligence partner that, that got me into this great opportunity. So it depends. Let, let's say for most people, it's just a, a transaction support. And may, some people do multiple deals. So we get to see each other a couple of times as a result. Um, there's a couple of groups I'm working with that are sort of aggregating several business buyers. And so we may even do, you know, eight deals a year. For people who I actually like, who I like the deals, who like me, I, I use the phrase, we like each other's gumbo. <laughs> um, I try to negotiate some sort of upside arrangement for doing, um, you know, fractional CFO things post-close. 
and helping them get set up in the business in the right way. Typically, you're going to be inundated with more stuff than you have time to do in the first six months of an acquisition. And so I lend a helping hand to get a piece of the up. I mean, it's amazing that, that I've done this for three years and I've talked to people literally all over the world to like 25 plus countries. And every time I hear kind of their business, like transition story, their business startup story, it's like right. they can talk about what they did before. And, you know, you mentioned I'm a reformed engineer. Right. It's interesting. How much of that do you actually use in in the diligence process? I mean, is it do you see, you know, your engineer brain kick in your Harvard business brain kick in at the same time? Yeah, I'm a pretty specialized and dangerous tool. I'm sort of like <laughs> Liam Nelson and yeah. uh, Taken. Yeah. I have a very particular set of skills. Um, I will find you. Me my daughter is back. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm dangerous because I can walk the shop floor and have done it before as a manufacturing engineer. Um, I can wear some jeans and crawl up under something nasty and I'm not going to squirm. I can have conversations with people because I have to sell my services. So I have that sort of bedside manner. Um, and then the thing about engineering plus finance that's really cool is it's like numbers on numbers. I mean, it's just a relentless understanding of how numbers and equations work. So I think the engineering piece that I use the most, and this would be cool for your audience because I think all of us have something we used to do mm -hmm. that if we bring it to bear in the thing we're doing now, we'll probably be better. Engineering was the hardest, like, like set time thing I've ever done in my life. Like the time I spent at Georgia Tech was like relentless in how much it beat me down. And so a lot of these diligence processes get into really detailed long hour numbers. The other piece is that for those who have any understanding of financial statement analysis or just appreciate complex quantitative systems, an engineer will pick up on data trends quicker than most because we've seen more complex data trends than the average investment banker or straight finance person. Because I tell people all the time, finance is addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division primarily. Whereas engineering is like all kinds of three dimensional mm -hmm. analysis, integrations, permutations. And so I, I see a lot of things quicker as an engineer. There's, there's no doubt about it. And, and not only are, do you have an engineering background, I mean, you probably went to, if, if not the best, probably one of the top two engineering schools in the country. And so you didn't go to some directional D3 school and, and, you know, minor in engineering and major in classics or something like right. that. So, right. I mean, you, you bring something to the table for sure, something of value. And then, you know, you went to that little, little college up in Massachusetts called Harvard. Right. That, uh, you know, that little, little Juco up there. That, Some uh, people know about it. Yeah. yeah very few people play Juco basketball. You heard of that. Main level finance ball. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. Exactly. I, I love it. So, and it's, it is interesting because I, I do think that you would have kind of an analytic nature to you from engineering that you could bring to bear in this, in this process. But so I'm really curious. I mean, I, I've interviewed other, other acquisition specialists before. And, and the, the question that, that always plagues me about this, this whole process is how do you know the information you're looking at is, is correct? I mean, Oh, are you, yeah. you know, you're just looking at stuff that the, the seller's giving you, you know, how do you know the books aren't cooked? How do you know the, you know, that these are really accurate, you know, reflections of where the business is? So Kevin, 
that's not only a great question, that's the fundamental question any buyer should ask. I don't even like dealing with buyers if they're not asking that question. And, and honestly, buyers who don't ask that question, A, lose a lot of money, but B, I tend to want to push them to someone else because the, the way that you know is you check primary data, almost like a historian. Like if I want to find out what's going on in South America, I don't call a guy in South America and ask him to tell me what's going on in South America. I fly to South America, I look mm. at what's going on, I analyze the data myself, and I, I, I understand fundamentally what I saw and I can describe it. So when it comes to businesses, lots of data, and you run your own, I run my own, so we know how easy we can manipulate data if we wanted to. The things that I like about business acquisition and particularly around due diligence is certain data sets are pretty much always accurate. So for instance, taxes may be a low profit uh, manifestation of a real business performance because you don't want to overpay Uncle Sam. Mm -hmm. Financials may be an inflated version because you want to show somebody how grandiose your business right. is. Right, look good for the shareholders. <laughs> exactly. But I promise you, um, if you walk into a bank and put in $100 and say, hey, can you tell Elliot that $100 is $200? they are not going to do that for anybody. Yep. And so my favorite set of data is the bank statements just because they're, they're accurate. If money came in, they're going to account for it. If money came out, they're going to account for it. You may say, hey, I did a, a, a four for four at Wendy's and I, I shouldn't have that isn't a real business expense added back. I get it, but it's actually there for me to see. Mm -hmm. I don't have to guess what it is. Even checks, which are an archaic form of paying that some right. people still do. Most banks still have a copy of the check on their statements. Mm -hmm. And so those are pretty accurate. The other thing is diligence is a process of triangulating data. So simple things in a business show up several different ways. So like revenue, revenue is in your financials, revenue is the deposits in the bank, revenue is on your taxes, but revenue is also the aggregate of all your invoices. So as I start looking at different data sets, I'm able to triangulate that data. Um, same thing with like asset heavy businesses. So you might have 10 trucks on your balance sheet um, in your financials, you may have the same thing in your taxes. But um, if you have 10 trucks, you're going to have 10 VIN numbers, 10 mm -hmm. maintenance records, and other things that help you triangulate. And so part of the process is if you're good at it, which I've been doing this for over 10 years, you have a very conversation just like ours back and forth, no pop quiz kind of thing. But you're asking the same question three or four different ways over the course of a day or two to really get to what the true answer is. So are you spending, a, I'm assuming spending a lot of time on site? I mean, if, if I'm if I'm the seller, if I'm the business that, that wants to sell, I'm, I'm going to have Elliot in my back pocket for, for you know, almost every day for weeks. I'm, you know, and he's, he's almost like he's auditing me. I mean, it really is an audit at, at the end of the day. That's what of, I call it. Some so sort, the you know. main report that we sell is called a quality of earnings. And the easiest way to describe it is an audit of a private company. I mean, I do go back to the bank statement thing. I mean, the, the thing that struck me as you were talking is, you know, when you said I can look at invoices, I can look at tax records, I can look at this, I can look at that. But the not only will the bank statements show me the the actual amounts, you know, of revenue, it also shows me cash flow. 
yes. it shows me ins and outs. And, yes. and I, when I'm looking at that versus if I'm just looking at invoices, I have no idea if they've been collected or not. That's, that's right. You may have a ridiculous amount of uncollectible, you know, of accounts receivable or whatever, you know, yep. wait, just sitting there that you can't collect on. That's and right. it looks really good on the sales side. But if you look at my bank statement, if I say I sold $4 million and I got $10,000 in the bank, there's a story there that we need to dig into. <laughs> yeah, I mean, absolutely. And it's just, again, you can't go into the bank and give them a hundred bucks and have them tell somebody else is 200 bucks. And for anybody who has any understanding of, of accounting constructs, there's a lot of, I'm not going to call them games. There's a lot of things that are presented in a certain way so that they're comprehensible for main street investors. Right. Mm -hmm. However, they're not cash. So you can't spend profit. You can't spend revenue. You can't spend net income. You can only spend cash. Yep. The bank talks about cash, not revenue, which goes through AR gets collected and goes to cash Yep. No, cash. So even situations where, a lot of sellers. So one of the things about buying a business that makes it a bit more scary is say we're on the street and I'm selling you, you know, a hundred dollar pair of shoes. And I tell you that the shoes are actually worth 120 bucks. So I put $20 or extra sort of value on the things. And if you believe my sort of story, then you pay $20 extra. I gave you $20 extra in sort of story. And it's one for one because businesses are valued at a multiple of cash flow or EBITDA. Mm -hmm then if I convince you that $100,000 of profit that isn't really there is there as the seller, I don't get $100,000, not one for one. I typically get three to four times that. Yeah, yeah. And, and so some, some it's a higher multiple. Tell a story. Yeah, I mean, depending on the industry, it could even be a higher multiple, you know? So, oh gosh, sure. absolutely. And size of business and all the rest. Mm -hmm. um, it, it can be tough. And, and that's why it's important. I know a lot of people who are experts in, their discipline, right? So like an engineer, a, a, a roofing guy, a steel dude, a digital marketer, right? And so when it comes to like the operation of the business, they're the expert. But very few folks who can dig through private business financials because they're messy, they're inaccurate. A lot of people are on personal expenses through them. So I think it's mission critical that you get somebody who understands them. And we mm -hmm. compete a lot with CPAs and they're great, I think, at understanding like historical numbers. But the benefit that you get with my business, Guardian Due Diligence, is you have a buy side deal guy who's done deals advising you on the numbers of the business. And so you're actually not buying last year's cash flow, you're buying next year's. And so a big part of our That's work a great distinction. is making sure that last year's EBITDA or cash flow, which you're paying a multiple of, it's actually indicative of next year's when you're probably kicking a seller out. You didn't put the, the, the management team's kids through college. You weren't the one to pay these people to get their mortgage paid off. And so thinking through some of the nuanced points that allow a million dollar cash flow business last year to be a million dollar cash flow business next year. So, I mean, I can also see a, a, a much broadened value to your service. I mean, if you're just competing head to head with the CPA, they're just looking at the financials. They really aren't bringing a lot to the table from an operational standpoint or from a, a culture standpoint or a management, you know, you know, standpoint of the, of the business. I mean, you're, to me, you're looking at almost like a 360, you know, evaluation. You're going, you're probably talking to the, you know, the C-suite, you're talking to the managers, you're talking to employees. 
I mean, this, this complete comprehensive, you know, view um, of, of a business that, that's about to be bought. So, I mean, if I'm an elevator and, and you're pitching against a CPA, I, it's, that's a pretty easy sell if I'm, the, if I'm wanting to buy. I mean, if you really get, if you have an opportunity to kind of explain the difference, you know, in your service versus what a, what a CPA would do. I mean, tell me, I mean, how many, what's the, what's the close rate of, of uh, just kind of a ballpark figure of people that you talk to versus people that actually, you know, sign on your services? You know, it's probably between a quarter and a third, but a lot of Pretty things good. affect that. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, it is. And, and, and thank you for saying that. Cause sometimes you can, you can forget. Um, sometimes people like brand names, right? And the top 50 accounting firms in the nation, the top 100, the accounting firm your dad uses for contracts, the accounting firm that your, 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 your lawyer likes that probably gonna charge you a whole lot more for a whole lot less. But I understand sometimes, you know, Guardian isn't the biggest brand name yet. Yeah, I love that yet. <laughs> yeah, I, I plan to, to, to grow the biggest diligence business for Main Street business buyers the world's ever seen. I, I'm on my way. The other thing that happens sometimes is people like being cheap, right? Mm-hmm. And so they want to put a million dollar bet up and they want, you know, $4,000 protection. You know what I mean? That's like going into a live war zone, you know, with, with the guy that just learned how to be a security guard last week. <laughs> and if you want to be cheap, hey, you know, that's fine. You can execute deals without diligence, but it's crazy that people would 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 sort of snark at such a small portion of a million dollar bet. Um, and then I think what happens, and I'm getting better at it, Kevin, is recognizing the people who are serious, right? who understand the risk, who have a healthy appreciation of it, and who recognize this is more than just a financial decision. It has a huge component that's operational. And so you're right, connecting the operations to the financial piece and also like the, the personal stuff. So for instance, if I were to buy your business, Kevin, your business is inextricably related to you. Mm-hmm. So I need to keep you around for a time. Right. So sometimes I have to convince my clients, I know you want to get 78 pieces of data from the Kevins, right? But the only way your deal works is if Kevin likes you. Mm. So you need to be nicer to Kevin. And so there's sort of like people stuff that goes on here too, that wraps everything up to get a good deal. Yeah, that I mean, what's that old adage that talks about being penny wise and pound foolish, you know, where you're going, you know, I'm going to beat Kevin down on so I can get the best possible price on the buy side. But now Kevin's mad at me. So, you know, if he's going to if it's in the contract, he's going to stick around for 18 months. He is going to be the worst employee we have. That's (laughs) it. I had a client call me last year and it was crazy. Um, U.S. guy based in Africa buying a website business down in Texas and he, he wanted to be cheap and lazy. He didn't want to look around for like his own advisors and, and he wanted to pay the, the least. And so the seller has a representative, the sell side broker, and then the buyer is typically by themselves until they get a diligence team. So he said, hey, broker who works for the seller, who should I use for a lawyer? <laughs> hey, broker who, <laughs> who works for the seller, wow. who should I use for an accountant? Hey, broker who works for the seller, what do you think I should pay for this business? And so he was talking to me while he was doing this. And he finally said, hey, well, you know, the broker said I should use, you know, 
ABC law firm and BBC um, accounting firm. And I, I just told him, I was like, hey, I may not get your business, I get this, but do you recognize that all the advisors you have are, are given to you by a person who gets paid a portion of the transaction value when you close? Nobody is actually incented to help you. Um, and I don't think he quite understood that until he flew from Africa to Texas. And, and you'll appreciate this. I think the seller thought he had a sucker. So he increased the purchase price 25% during the trip. And the guy came back and he's like, well, what do I do, Elliot? They, they're asking for 25% more. And Kevin, I didn't know what to tell him, but I'd probably raise the price 25% on you too. Yeah, I, I mean, I love that. I thought you were going to say he landed, he went to the office, and and in that office suite were, was the accounting firm, the lawyer. The, they they were all sharing an office there. So, yeah, I mean, they, they were got probably a vested all high fiving each other after he left. Like, <laughs> exactly. They're all sitting around laughing. Guys like this, we'll be set for life. So I understand from a seller standpoint, uh, I would want to give you the information that, that you're asking for. And, you know, hopefully it's, it's going to be accurate, but are sellers ever reluctant to, to give you access to information as the, as the buyer's broker? Yeah, all the time, really. It's, um, it is the trust walk. Um, can I use a G rated dating analogy? Absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's your really show. Like getting married. And it's very close in, in actual finality in that, like I said, a successful deal means the seller actually still likes you at close and wants to help you grow mm. their business that they still know better at close than you do. Yep. So you show up and you and offer, here's what I want to pay for your business. And they say yes or no. That's kind of like the first date, mm -hmm. really. They don't know you, they don't trust you. Apparently you have some money, you put together a three page legal thing that looks okay. I'll take your you know, $4 million offer for my million dollar cash flow business. Then you get into diligence and there's this pause of like, A, most sellers don't have the data collected and B, for a private business owner, one of the scariest things to do is to put your hard fought private information into this ecosystem protected by some three-page legal non-disclosure agreement right. that's being honored that by you hope is going to work yeah exactly mm -hmm. so customer data profitability all this kind of thing and so you have to sort of earn the seller's trust date three mm -hmm. yep. date four do we like <laughs> each other some data you don't get until late in diligence like a lot of sellers won't give their customer data until the end mm -hmm. um I've seen a lot of sellers, they'll be a little tricky. They won't say it, but they won't give you any data until you finish your accounting review. Mm. So until you connect that the EBITDA actually is representative, they'll, they'll slow play data. Then as you get further into the process, it's interesting because you become the money bag. So if I'm buying your business, Kevin, and we're into this two or three months, right? And you're looking at a $4 million payday, I have to sort of sometimes say, hey, for the first two months, I was really nice and patient but I'm the one bringing 4 million bucks for this business in a month or two. Yep. I need all the data today. Yep. And love you, respect you. And I know that you're an independent entrepreneur and you've done great, but I can't wait anymore. Right. And I think that's almost like the engagement really, mm -hmm. right. When you have to start trusting somebody past your comfort level and then closing the deal feels like marriage. Right. Yep. Um, and so 
a lot of times sellers are slow on data. And the funny thing is novice buyers, oh, this crazy seller, oh, this guy won't give mm-hmm. me any data. Doesn't he know this? And doesn't he read that? And, and I, I tell people all the time, very smart people don't do things out of ignorance. You probably just don't understand all their motives. So we sometimes battle that. And I think part of it's being patient, right? And sometimes I send people an email with a single image of a Brinks truck. Just to remind just them. Just a reminder. <laughs> Where's the piggy bank in this transaction? <laughs> That's right. You, there's, a, there's a huge pot of gold at the end of this rainbow, but yep. we've got to dance during diligence. And it's, I mean, it's not just the kind of closing a client and then, then you go do your work and give them a report and it's done. I mean, you, you really have to coach buyers through the process because this is probably the first time they've ever done it. Or if they have done, maybe they've done it one other time, but they probably didn't have a service like yours to go through the process. So um, it's, it would be a, I mean, even I've got to learn to trust you too, as, as the buyer, I've got to learn as your, as my agent, my broker in this process, I've got to trust you that when you tell me here, okay, these stages are normal. You know, it's almost like the, a doctor, an, an OB doctor, you know, walking a right. you know, first time pregnant lady through the yes. process. This is normal. Yes. Relax. The heartbeat's yes. supposed to be 150. The, yes. you know, if it gets to this level, we should talk right away. But under this, you're fine. Exactly. Everything's fine right now. Here's the margin of error. So, yeah, I love that. And to be honest, Kevin, you know, I'm an entrepreneur. You know, this is still something I started four years ago. And so... I'm expanding the service offerings into more of coaching. You know, I started with the quality of earnings report because it's sort of the integral must do piece of work that most buyers do on en route to buying a business. Mm-hmm. But as I expand, there's going to be more of a coaching element. Cause I get a lot of people who like, you know, January 1, 2021, they decided they wanted to leave their corporate thing and buy a business. And they need like all 10 years of my experience in a palatable digestible format. And so those services will be coming. The other thing I do around trust building, right now I'm doing a weekly office hours. It may turn to once every two weeks, but I give people the chance to just ask sort of whatever deal related questions they want to ask. And it's just an open forum, right? So it'd be 10, 15, sometimes four or five people. Mm -hmm. And I think it gives them a chance to ask real difficult, detailed, nuanced, bespoke questions and get honest answers. Because sometimes Mm -hmm. it's easier to say, Yes, no, because that gets people kind of done with their question. But for me, a lot of times it's, you know, detailed, nuanced, experience level coaching. And and that's, I think, when people really get into a mode of, he knows a lot more about this than I do. Yeah, yeah, there's no doubt. That, that wouldn't take long with the conversation with you and I, for me to yeah. come to that realization. So, uh, yeah. Is that, are you talking about clients that you're having this, this, these office hours with, or this just kind of an open forum? Right now it's an open forum because I, I realized that for a lot of my potential clients, they don't really know the risk that they're getting into. So like this past, like fr- yesterday, so I did an office hours yesterday and I tried something. I went through like a 30 page quality of earnings report. And, and Kevin, I couldn't get through half of it before they started, uh, forget that. I want to ask questions about this deal, that deal, the other deal, right? And I realized that for a lot of folks, they've sort of committed to the fact that they will probably have to trust the seller mm-hmm. or trust the process and not have a major avenue to get um, 
accurate data through. And mm -hmm. that's the way they're thinking about it. And so I have to sort of educate them that investing is not betting. Mm. People think it's a bet when you're outside of the investing game. Investing is buying 50 or a dollar for 50 cents. But you don't know if it's 50 cents or a dollar 50, right? Um, unless you do the work. So I, I try to give people the opportunity to come get a taste um, because I think some, a part of it is just me, you know, if you don't like the way I speak, the tempo, the, the lens that I come from, then I may not be the best solution, but I enjoy the work that I do. So in, anyone can come to my website. You can actually go on my website, um, sign up for the weekly office hours and, um, ask a question either by text, or you can click a button and just say it into your computer and that's it. So I try to make it easy. So I, I, um, and you talked about you started four years ago. Give me an idea of who the, you know, what's the typical business size that that you generally deal with? And, you know, if you want to get into it, kind of get into maybe what's, what would be kind of a broad range, like a pricing structure? Like if I'm wanting to buy a million dollars, what would I expect to, to pay in the process to have the full, you know, office suite of services that, that Guardian Diligence would bring to the table? Sure. So most of the deals that I do are under $5 million because the SBA 7A program will lend you up to $5 million to any individual. And so most of the buyers I deal with are in that space. And I try to make it specific on the, the landing page on my website. People think I'm doing these huge deals, $5 million and below, a lot of my deal flow is there. Um, and that's typically, so in, in, in the part of market where I work, the valuations are typically three to five times cash flow mm -hmm. or EBITDA or what they call seller's discretionary earnings. And so, you know, a $500,000 cash flow deal will go for about 1.5 million as, as cash flow gets to about a million in size, typically the multiple is closer to four. So it'll be a $4 million mm -hmm. deal. Those are the kind of things that I'm doing and typically helping everyday folks like I helped I grew up in Ann Arbor Michigan I helped a guy in Chelsea Michigan last year to close a deal I helped some kind of Wall Street guys that are working at firms that want to do their own deal outside of their kind of billion dollar investing thing they want to do something that they own and then a lot of guys that are like mid-career like um, you know mid-30s they're a marketing person or a salesperson or operations person in some industry and they want to buy a business in that industry and kind of become their own boss that's really where I live and because Guardian is really the service provider I wish I had when I was a business buyer, mm -hmm. we do fixed fee engagements. So our quality of earnings that gets wrapped with our deal advisory services, that's $15,000. Then if you want a light version of our quality of earnings, that's somewhere between eleven dollars and $12,000. So instead of doing three years historical, we'll do the trailing 12-month period in the last fiscal year. And we'll pull out some of the analysis to make it a bit more palatable for people. Um, and, and that's it. What's nice is I tell people when you've done it as much as I do, you can sort of predict the workload. And so I can tell you, if you go to like a CPA firm, they're always saying, hey, I charge 150 an hour. My partner charges 200 an hour. My analyst charges 75. It's somewhere between X hours and Y. And you're somewhere between, you know, 15 to 35,000 bucks. And they used to frustrate me so much. I'm asking an accountant for a number. 
and they're giving me a range, like it just sets up from the beginning poorly. So we're fixed fee, you know what you're getting into. The other thing that's nice about us, we're all about transparency. So it's a three to four week process, let's call it four weeks. What we do in the first week is we take all the numbers that we get from the data room and spread them out so you can sort of see what's going on. And really what we're doing is we're, we're sort of screening for the top deal breakers that occur in deals. And so we'll evaluate and find 70 to 85% of deal breakers within the first week. Um, and what that means is sort of day eight, you're either, hey, this is a bad deal, save your time. And I might've saved you two or three months of effort and a whole lot of money because you're not gonna need a lawyer for this and all this kind of other stuff. Um, or, hey, eight days in, you're comfortable that the main things have been knocked away. So now you can go talk to your lender Go talk to your lawyer, talk to your seller with more conviction, which helps you get deeper into the deal more quickly. Whereas a lot of my competition won't produce anything of value in their quality awareness process for, for three weeks. And at that point, I know it's just a two week difference, but when you're in these like month to month sprints to close a deal, those two weeks can make a world of difference in terms of like, do you turn on a $20,000 lawyer? Yes, no. Do you spend 35 hours with a lender? Yes, no. So, yep. so we help people get to the answer quicker. I mean, at that stage, do you have an idea what the selling price is and if there's any margin, you know, any, any wiggle room in that? Because you can do all the diligence in the world, but if, if they're wanting to sell this business for 6 million, and I don't care if there's no possible way you can get to a, a multiple to get the 6 million, you know, you know, this yeah. is, it's not going to be over 4 million at what right point in that process do you understand that i mean do you know that before almost like the first week you know that or where in the process would you would that light bulb come on so the beauty of the deal process around that is the letter of intent is sort of the agreement that the buyer makes with the seller so i look at a bunch of deals i like you know abc manufacturing company 10 miles east of atlanta and i tell the owner hey you know you got a million dollar cash flow business I'm going to pay you $4 million. Um, you're going to hold a seller's note of 25% of that, so a $1 million I'm going to pay you over three to five years after we close. The other three quarters of the purchase price, you know, uh, if it's a million four, so $3 million I'm going to pay you at close. Here's the conditions. I need six months of your time to coach me. Um, I'm expecting that your business maintains a $1 million of cash flow. There's $200,000 of working capital in the business. I expect to buy the business with that here's my offer. And at the time of the letter of intent, here's the trade. So you kind of know the price at letter of intent. Here's why the seller signs that letter and says, yes, Elliot, I'll sell my business for 4 million bucks in the structure you provided subject to diligence. But what I get for that is the 90 day plus or minus exclusive right to buy the business. Mm -hmm. So nobody else can buy the business during that right. time. Kind of like earnest money to on top of like a, like a house purchase type thing. Yep. And there's earnest money component in some deals. I shy away from that only because I think both the buyer and the seller can walk away at mm. any time. So I've mm -hmm. often been asked by sellers to put some earnest money down. And I ask, is the seller going to put any earnest money down? Because if I spend my three months looking at the deal and the seller walks, which has happened, right? I've got real costs, real lawyers, real yep. accountants, real lender egg on my face. And that guy goes back to running his million dollar business. So I, I sort of say, I'm not doing earnest because mm -hmm. we both have that risk. But 
for accepting my offer for me investing this time of diligence and this money of lawyers and accountants, what I get back is the 90 days of exclusivity. So I don't have to worry if I get ABC manufacturing company to accept my letter, I don't have to worry about Kevin showing up, talking to the owner and buying the business 45 days in. Um, I get that time to, to evaluate. Right. Right. Have you, uh, I mean, in this crazy time we're, we're all experiencing called COVID. I mean, what, right. what have you seen, what's been the effect on your business or kind of the industry as a whole, the business acquisition industry? Um, is it, have you seen an uptick? You seen a downtick? Is it about, you know, pretty steady? I mean, what, what have you seen in the last Great 12 question. months? So let's call it the beginning of COVID March 1, 2020, you know, you can kind of debate that. Um, for like four or five months, it was like tumbleweeds, dude, just nothing. <laughs> Crickets. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and that was tough for, I think, anybody who's um, providing services to that uh, the infrastructure or that ecosystem, rather. And so around August, September, things started picking back up because I think it's like, hey, this is our new normal. Mm -hmm. um, we have to figure it out. And so some businesses took a hit, and so they may be available for a lower price. Some businesses stayed steady or grew, and they probably traded at a higher multiple than they would have because some of the market didn't do as well. Then I think January 1, I think everybody went home, had their you know Thanksgiving turkey, uh, they, they did the New Year's thing. And 2021, I think for a lot of folks is, we gotta go make hay when the sun shines. Mm. So the volume seems to be back. I think we're dealing with how do you account for PPP loans in mm -hmm. a multiple of cash flow world? How do you deal with companies that took a hit for a little bit of 2020, but are coming back? And mm -hmm. so their trailing 12 months may not be as strong as it has been historically, but you expect their next 12 months to be stronger. And then some deals, people are having to take a bit of a flyer, right? In terms of, I think this industry is great. Right now it's down. So if I have the cash to to invest and sort of I can wait three to five years to kind of see the full benefit of my investment, then I can I can do stuff like, you know, hospitality, I think is coming back. Yeah, travel. Yeah. Back. Is there a, is it a I mean, you would think it's almost a buyer's market because there are so many businesses that may have had a really tough last 12 months, you know, um, but there's also so much cash available. Yes because there's, there's so little to actually invest in that, that has any rate of return at all. So yes. that it's like those two market forces are kind of competing against each other. So, you know, to kind of keep that equilibrium, you know, a little bit in the, in the market, but have you seen, I mean, is, is it a buyer's market right now? I would say it's more a seller's market. So the growth of buyers, I think due to the democratization of, you know, private equity, which is sort of mm -hmm. the industry of buying businesses has become and created way more buyers relative to a couple of years ago. So there's yeah. still way more sellers than buyers, but in terms of compared to expectations that may have been set five years ago, there's way more buyers in the market. And so therefore buyers are competing for the same deals. Um, I think a strong business is going to fetch what we call a healthy fee, a multiple that a buyer will have to struggle to, to pay. Right. Um, but interest rates are lower too. Say so. it again. The interest rates are lower too. It's like you can buy more house now because of interest rates being so low. CARES Act made the SBA loan program more favorable. Now you can put some portion of 10% down instead of 25% previously. Mm. Get a seller note, it can be less than 10%. Um, 
you know, it's interesting the finding the right deal is so important. And then in my mind, the way that people make a lot of money in this industry um, of buying companies is sort of when you know an industry really well and you can see a diamond in the rough, I think you make a lot of money then. Or when you have a very specific thesis. So you're looking for a half bent paperclip that's copper and you yep. might be looking through a lot of stuff. And when you yep. see that half bent paperclip that's copper, you go right away. You may outbid some other people because you know you can do stuff. The third way I see that is really strategic is a lot of people who are good at marketing or sales that will buy like an industrial company that probably does marketing and sales very old school. Mm-hmm. Bring it to 2021 to that company, and they can grow those businesses really quick. And I, I, uh, it, it's a, it has been a pleasure chatting with you today because I, I, it's funny when I. I'll ask you certain questions. I almost see your eyes light up like you're going, man, now you are speaking my language. <laughs> so That's right. You are speaking not, it's not the business side of Ellie. This is the heart. You know, I, I have reached his heart, you know, so it this is. This matters uh, to me, Patrick. You know, I tell people all the time, I run a business and um, I need to create fees, but the stuff that I do is prevent people from losing millions of dollars and, and, and going bankrupt. And like that matters to me when I yep. see, you know, every day, you know, professional folks say, forget this day job, I'm going to go buy a million dollar business, and they successfully do it. It it warms my heart and helping them do it is a labor of love. And, and I'm fortunate to be able to charge a fee for a labor of love. And I have a feeling that the, the ones that buy businesses and are successful, and they and they can see the benefit of, of, you know, of using your services on the front end, because it's sure paying dividends year after year, that you're building a tribe, you're building a community around you too, of, of people that you you worked with, and they're referring other people to you. And, um, you know, they're, they're calling you, you're getting Christmas cards from them and stuff like that. Just so just the whole idea of, you know, hey, uh, we're doing so well, I, I got four tickets to the Masters here, Elliot, I'd love you, right. you to come along because you know, I got to introduce you to some, some friends here on the on the there you go, on the 17th, 17th green here. But uh, man, I, I just really appreciate you taking the time today. And I just we, we've covered a lot of subjects but is there is there one thing you kind of want to close us with that i haven't asked you about and then make sure you kind of close us with letting people know where the best place to find you is um the the thing around diligence that i didn't share in this podcast that i want to give people as they sort of start looking at things um have way more trust for documents to come directly from the system that they were derived in versus things that have been manipulated so most mm. private business owners are going to be using QuickBooks for their financials. When you see financials that are in Excel, doctored, look pretty, may fit well on a single page, that's cute. But what I want to see is that that funky standard QuickBooks header. Yeah. And if I don't see that funky standard QuickBooks header, I'm very hesitant to believe the data. So so that's that's a free one. If you guys want some others, you got to come to the website. So come <laughs> find me at guardiandiligence.com, um, D-U-E for, for do on that. And then you can find me on LinkedIn, um, Elliot Holland, two L's, two T's, and Elliot. Um, and you can also email me directly at eholland, that's Holland like the country, at guardiandiligence.com. And I'm very responsive. I'll say this, um, diligence can be a, a, a somewhat boring thing in some worlds. I also try to make this very exciting. So I think you'll enjoy working with me. 
Well, there's no doubt if people, you know, watch this on YouTube and they, they just see your passion, it, it, it comes through for sure. So I was looking on your LinkedIn profile. It said ETA. What's yeah. ETA stand for? Um, entrepreneurship through acquisition. Okay. So, it's so a lot whole of by side. schools have created um, a curriculum around um, entrepreneurship through acquisition. So it's like a whole marketplace. Um, it's really cool. It's a new name for something people have been doing for ages. So, so yep. don't get caught up on that. But like, you know, the business school folks, they know ETA, like there's an ETA conference at MIT. Next week, there was one at Chicago booth two weeks ago, Harvard had theirs in the fall. So if you want to learn more stuff about this industry, as you get up to speed, I think the two things to search on Google would be ETA entrepreneurship through acquisition. And then acquisition entrepreneurs are sort of what the people are called that are doing the buying. And it's not just estimated time of arrival. It's uh, right. It's right. It stands right. for something else. Although you will deliver if you, I if will you deliver and, on time. Yes. Will deliver estimated on... time will be the delivery time, <laughs> but, but that's not what we're talking about. Exactly. <laughs> Elliot, man, I appreciate your time today. I, I, uh, cutting, cutting some carving some space out on a Saturday morning to chat with us. And I uh, really appreciate that. And just, Thanks again for all you do and for really playing your part in helping all boats rise in a rising tide. Elliot, have a great weekend. Have a great weekend too, Kevin. Thank you for having me. Another episode in the books. We hope you heard some great takeaways. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a five-star review on iTunes and YouTube. As always, thanks for listening to Rising Tide.